Hello. Welcome to the Oxford Anthropology Podcast. You're listening. You're listening to the Oxford Anthropology, Anthropology Podcast. Podcast. To the Oxford Anthropology Podcast. My name is Lan Duo, and I'm a default candidate here at the University of Oxford, working on contemporary well-being in urban cities. Welcome to the podcast channel of the School of Anthropology and Museum Ethnography. In this episode, we feature Nico Anand from the University of Pennsylvania, very well known among us for his book *Hydraulic City: Water and the Infrastructure of Politics in Mumbai*. As an environmental anthropologist researching on cities, climate change, state power, and infrastructure, he, in this talk, will dive into some details in his new upcoming book, take us to his ethnographic encounters, and his reflections on the uncertain futures faced by coastal cities in an era of climate change. The title of this talk is "Living in a Tide." Enjoy. My research, I examined how urban worlds. Are being imagined and made possible with water. I theorize the urban process of water not just because water is of significant contemporary concern, but also because it provides a different lens with which to understand urban space and politics, which have thus far shown a propensity to theorize with solids in generating its key concepts. The attention to water reveals the more fickle, fluid, and dynamic processes through which cities are made. Water makes urban spaces in ways that planners and engineers can seldom fully control or even apprehend. While in sabbatical at Oxford this year, I'm currently writing a book based on field research I've been conducting since 2016, tentatively titled "The Urban Sea." Today, anthropogenic climate change calls for a rethinking of how coastal cities may be inhabited in the future. How do residents inhabit cities amidst infrastructural and climatic uncertainty? The book is based on research with fishers, scientists, particularly oceanographers, and planners who work in the sea to dwell in emergent futures from and in the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene does not only present challenges to the lives of cities and citizens, but also to the work of scholars. Demands, as Deepesh Chakrabarti has previously argued, that social and environmental processes be addressed more capaciously across the natural and human sciences. As such, the questions that I approach in the book are shared by an ongoing collaboration called the Inhabited Sea. The book both draws from and contributes to this collaboration. The Inhabited Sea is a transdisciplinary research initiative comprising of Mumbai-based architects, artists, citizen scientists, ethnographers, urban planners, oceanographers, sociologists, and filmmakers. We gather to examine the life of cities amid sudden urban habitat and the diversity of marine life amid cities' plastic-filled coastlines. Finally, committed to open access scholarship, the entire collection of research projects, as well as the public seminars that launch them, are freely available online. I will be featuring research done by my colleagues also in this talk. Today, I present a very tentative and just-written draft that forms part of my second chapter of the book. More ethnographic than theoretical, 
I look forward to hearing your comments, um, questions, and the discussions from an already wide open at this point. Because I'm an Indian living in England right now, let me start with a cricket story. In December 2019, I visited my friend and interlocutor, Anthony, at his home. Anthony was a Kohli fisher living in one of Mumbai's 27 fishing villages, villages that had been in Bombay before it was a city. His home was on the edge of the coast, built higher above the high tide line. Sea breezes were a feature of his home, as was a sleeping view of the water. As we were walking, as we were talking, I noticed a few boys walking into the sea and setting up their wickets for a game of cricket. I was puzzled, knowing only the terrestrial version of the game. At the time, they were knee deep in water as they began hitting the wickets into the sand. Yet, even as I continued my conversation with Anthony, I noticed the water recede and land and merge at the very spot they were knocking their wickets in moments before, anticipating the appearance of land. A few minutes later, the tide receded still further, revealing not just a dry pitch, but also a dryish field. Here, in one of the densest cities in the world, with little open space, the youth had read the cricket field into being in the sea, an unusual sweeping open day space amidst the boats. To inhabit the urban sea is to notice measures of time and space that I could not, at least initially, apprehend. Mumbai is a city made through relationships with the sea. Today, Mumbai, and largely for this reason, Mumbai regularly appears on calling, riffing on the work of Austin Seidemann, the endangered cities list. A list of cities is an foundation portended by the rising waters of climate change. Yet this is a terrestrial story of land being inundated by water. Since 2015, I've been navigating the urban sea with Mumbai's indigenous Kodi fishers because I want to provincialize this terrestrial story. I want to read practices of urban habitation in the sea, the sea that exists both across land and water that holds social life. So in the structure of the book, this is a very conventional sea-based story, but I'm thinking of the sea that extends across and below the city's territories as well. In Mumbai, fishers read and act in the urban sea through boundary-making practices that bring celestial bodies, tides, and more than human to relation. I wish to think of sea cosmologies not to highlight how sea thinking is distinct from land. As Stefan Helmrich has previously argued, thinking of the sea in this way has a deeply colonial lineage of a free maritime nature distinct from urban culture. Instead, in this chapter, I argue that coolie occupations in the city and occupations both as livelihood, but also of dwelling, have long been based on understanding the city as an ongoing process of wet and dry relations that are staged not just in volumes, as opposed to urban spaces, but also in, in time. An understanding of the city that is situated in ongoing relation with the land and sea, folding and unfolding in four dimensions. In such a rendering, urban lands do not end at the coastline. They are also composed of the sea. As Tim Gold has recently argued, and I quote, real lands are not sealed within their borders, but carry out a perpetual dialogue with the sea. In the hydrological cycle, in the harvesting of maritime and undersea resources by terrestrial populations, and in the atmospheric effects of industrial emissions as they absorbed by ocean currents. Mumbai's indigenous fishermen are only too aware that they live in and not on the urban sea. A sea which, while never pure, is continually being transformed by urban processes. Times to fish, 
times to market, and times to calibrate are all more the dynamic and reading of relations between the earth and the sea, between fish, fishers, their markets, and their publics. In contrast to planners and developers in Mumbai, that assume that the city can be durably dried and staged on dry land, fishers are acutely aware that ground is always sudden, that seas are full of stuff, and that intertidal regions and wetlands, specifically wetlands, are conditions of possibility for their everyday living. Pritchard's conceptions of time are not structured by the clock, but neither are they, as Evans Pritchard has famously described in the Noor, time that is regulated by societal activities. Indeed, Fisher's been enjoying being unmoored from clock time. Their activities are regulated socially, but they're also ordered by celestial phenomena, the phases of the moon in particular, and the times of sunrise and sunset, and the lunar months of the year. Nevertheless, this is not to suggest that Fisher temporalities or ontology that is creep from those of other urban legends for living or by, nor is it to argue that Fisher live outside of the histories and politics of colonial reclamation and real estate development in the city. They live, as all of us do, in more than one world, structured by overlapping histories that do not encompass their life ways. In the second part of the chapter, I show how urban metabolic processes, including real estate development and coastal pollution, constitute climate of fishing in Mumbai, a climate in which fish are harder to find and which the materialities of coastal seas, while always muddy, are even harder to discern. Amidst these foreclosed futures, Fishers don't only dream of one day having a sea full of fish. They also increasingly traffic in the dreams of spectacular profit through real estate development in the city. The earliest written records documenting the presence of Kohli in Mumbai stretched back to the 1500s, before Mumbai, before Bombay, before the city was a city. In the time since, Kohli's are widely recognized to be the autonomous residents of the city, the city of Pumiputra, or as colleagues of Lalitha Kamath and Gopal Dubey have pointed out in a recent film of the same name, as Sagarputra, as offspring of the sea. Today, they compose between 15 and 100,000 residents in Mumbai and live in 27 discrete Kodiwaras, or fishing villages, that are within city limits. Kodiwaras are at least both within and beyond the city's formal development processes, that their boundaries remain unmapped by city agencies of considerable concern to Kodis were justifiably suspicious of development projects that encroach on their lands. Right from colonial times, police have been keenly attuned to urban politics. Their oldest organizations still are active, the worthy Koli Samaj Vivid Kari Society, was founded in 1919. The society is led by nine elders, Nerf Bartels, that take out the many social and welfare responsibilities of the Kuliwara, including festivals and health camps or dealing with the government around developing questions of infrastructure provision. It was through this organization that I first met Anthony. At the time of our first meeting in 2016, Anthony was one of the few leaders of the march that were also still living on fishing. Others have been deeply engaged in negotiating redevelopment projects in the city or working to provide the city a village with sewage lines or urban street lighting. Anthony was also the secretary of a nearby church welfare organization and was widely perceived to be an influential elder living in the Kolimara. Kolis of Wadi Kolimara have primarily sown Kolis and may be Hindu or Christian. While Anthony was Christian and regularly paraded a small shrine by the landing site, many of his rituals before fishing and around festivals such as those of Kofa Devi or Nadia Purnima 
or more synthetic. For instance, one afternoon when we were talking about kin relations, he would describe how his caste, he used the English word, a fisherman lived up and down the Maharashtra coast all the way to Goa. I asked, by caste, did he mean Golis? Christian Golis, he responded. Yet when I asked after their festivals, he said they were the same as Hindu Golis. They both celebrated Nadia Purnima or Gokulashtami. Hindus celebrated Diwali, Christians celebrated Christmas, but even here there were similarities, he said. They make currently laddus for Diwali to make the same ones for Christmas. God lives in all of us, he said. Perhaps it was because of the times that he was speaking, times in which Hindutva, a parochial violent project of making India Hindu nation, that is politically ascended in India uh, at this time, perhaps he can speak in these times, but his version of religious strategy is somewhat comforting. Today, Anthony lives with his wife, the three sons and children in his family home, overlooking Mahim Bay. Anthony did not begin his life working as a fisher. Initially, in the 1980s, he followed his father into the city's booming industrial sector, initially working as a machinist in a bicycle factory, then as a diesel mechanic in his late teens and early 20s. At 27, he had obtained a visa to immigrate to work as a laborer in Dubai, but then he began to wonder, what is all this for? He could get jobs here and there, no problem, but why not work for himself? So he stayed back in Mumbai, got married, started experimenting with fishing, first by taking a 10-foot boat on loan, and then when he got a loan for his wedding, he used it to buy a bigger boat and turn fully to fishing. Fishing for Anthony was good in the 1980s. This was the period immediately following state programs to modernize artificial fishing in India, incentives that directly benefited fishers and the fishing organizations of the 20th century. For instance, in his research, Sanjay Ranade describes how, how, and I quote, in the late 1950s, the government of India introduced a loan scheme to help colleagues buy trawlers, and about 15 to 20 people began building bigger boats. The heavier boats demanded almost twice the amount of fuel and many more laborers. To encourage the fishermen to ply these boats, they also subsidized diesel. Fishing cooperatives at this time grew very strong and powerful powered by state loans for boats and nets, as well as companies for diesel. Wali Kolimara's two existing fishing cooperatives, the Wali Machima Sanigode Society and also the Wali Kolimara Nakwa Matsuyasai Society, um, continue to distribute these resources on a much smaller scale to this day. At that peak, and before the reduction of state subsidies, they empowered fishers like Anthony to make substantial investments into fishing. By the late 1980s, he owned seven boats and hired 20 people. The flow of fish was good at this time, he said. He got Surmai sunfish and Ravas, big fish. He had a good life, a free life. Fishing me azadi here, he said. With some other job, he would be a worker bound by what other people tell him to do. As a fisher, he had freedom, azadi, he had time at home. He worked first in the, in the sea for himself when he needed to work. Over the six years we've been meeting and talking, sometimes in his home and sometimes on his own, I have been particularly interested in Anthony's embodied knowledges of noticing and reading the sea. How did he know when to go fishing, where to cast his net, and which net he chose to cast every day? When did he learn how to fish? In September 2018, I asked Anthony about the different colors arts he needed to learn when he initially started fishing. He dismissed fishing as easy to do. All I have to do is tie four knots to the stationary fishing posts, he said, and the tide changes to go back and pick up the fish. Again, he spoke of Azadi, of freedom, over his time. 
This was the life he had wanted. I couldn't help but think of Anthony inhabiting Sardin's original affluent society, a society that was wealthy in time, an affluence he found after and not prior to his experience in the drudgery of industrial labor. Despite Anthony's refusal to think of fishing as an art, this is nevertheless a learned skill, not just of doing, but also of sensing and of seeing. I'm quite sure most of us would not find any fish in Mumbai seas, even if we were somehow to find a boat and fishing nets to do so. Fishing is an embodied practice, one that is learned and performed by sensing the wind and its currents by using particular kinds of nets and boats in specific space times in the muddy earth and sea. It's through this, these forms of sensing and doing that objects and life forms like fish emerge from the sea for worldies coli fishers. Thus, in our science, Karen Barad has devoted attention to the boundary making practices through which particular objects and ontologies are brought into being. Rod argues that objects in the world are not independent of what she calls their material, cultural, apparatus of observation. Subjects make agential cuts within phenomena to realize objects in the world. Following Rod, in this chapter, I dwell in the ways in which fish, fishers, and fisheries are all brought into being through such situated boundary making practices to become fishers and to produce a sea that reveals fish. Police had, over the last many years, Seeking heavenly temporalities with more earthly ones to produce a fishery in the earth and sea. The festival of Nariel Purnima marks the beginning of the fishing season. It is celebrated in the first full moon of the month of Shravan in the Hindu calendar. This is the lunar calendar, so the dates vary, but typically in around August 22nd. The full moon marks the end of the monsoon and the beginning of calmer, more dependable waters to resume fishing in. When I first met uh, Anthony in 2016-2017, he insisted that I visit the Kuli Mara during the festival. Being familiar with the predisposition of researchers, particularly those working on the seas, he reminded me to bring my camera. I agreed. If I was going to ask him all sorts of questions, I might as well be helpful documenting the festival for his family and friends. I was familiar with the festival. Growing up in Mumbai, we learned about the importance of what we call in English Coconut Day, in city schools, the day traditional fisher made offerings to of coconuts to the sea to keep the, the sea to keep them safe while fishing. In the city of in the city of festival, Nariyal Purnima, the largest Kodi festival in the Hindu calendar, and is celebrated both by fishers and land fishers in the village. Yet I had not expected the intensity of the celebration I encountered when I walked into the village with Anthony in 2017. Many were out on the streets and as a few different palkis made their way on handcarts through the narrow lanes with very exuberant drumming and dancing. As we walked the pier through drums and processions, Anthony introduced me to different Kodi parters, politicians and publics as we made our way to the sea. As the processions reached the sea, the leader would make short speeches. In 2018, for instance, one of the parters of Wadi Kodi Wada addressed his followers as he did the sea. Quote, the problems we are seeing, he said, referencing the recent floods in coastal Kerala and also the problems of plastic pollution in Mumbai's waters, were posed by Samutrancha Shankar for the, for the sea's difficulties. He asked for her protection, addressing her as a devotee before setting coconuts and offerings in the water. Nevertheless, the spectacle of the larger parties were only part of the story. Many families came on their own to pray to the sea and make it offerings. Anthony directed me to the pictures of families, friends, and associates he knew. 
but he gave his prayers till the end of the day when most had departed. Once the sun had set and many had returned to their homes, Anthony took me with his family to his boats that embarked on the shore for the monsoon. The short ritual involved prayers, incense, coconuts, and sweet puris. He offered these first to the sea, then to his boats, and then after this, we returned to his house and had some sweet sun at the end of the day. The fishing season begins at Nariel Purnima on the first full moon day, if not incidental. The tides are the strongest on the date of the full and new moon every month. Accordingly, for much of the year, fishers focus their fishing labor on the days preceding and following these two spring tides of the full and the new moons. While the moon invited fishers to narrow their fishing times to conducive times of month, the sun advises them of when to fish on a given day, that they may be more, most likely to catch them. Fish, Anthony would say, rise up in the evening at dusk and go down to the seabed at dawn. As such, fish would rise before the sun to catch the fish that move with it. If they sun grass before dawn, or just before dusk, they would complain that they missed the window for good catch. Taken together, fishing times are ordered by attending to the relations and positions, then, of the sun, the moon, and the earth, as they orbit and rotate around each other through the days, months, and years. Now, situated in the narrow continental shelf of Western India, Mumbai is visited by many different kinds of fish. Because different fish visit, spawn, and travel through Mumbai at different times of year, police expect and their customers expect to eat different kinds of fish in different seasons. So most of the expectations of what he would catch and which nets he would use were calibrated accordingly. You tell me, now is the season of prawns from Ganpati, Diwali. Alfred Surmaya laying eggs now. They would be good to catch during Diwali and just after. After that, they would go to the deep sea. He spoke of how it was unfortunate that the most abundant times to catch fish, September and October in particular, were also times upper caste Hindus would have their class, times of the year that they would not eat any fish. This is one way the Baniyas keep us down, he said. The time to get a big catch, no one needs to buy it. What about Christmas, I asked. Was fish plentiful then? Then people wanted to eat it, but this was a low season, he said. Magashish Pausarang, these are slacked times for fishing. In Mag, the fish come back. I asked after Sunmai, your kingfish. Apparently, it's only found in cleaner water these days, he told me, near Ratnagiri, the water around Mumbai are too polluted. So Anthony's arts of fishing were keenly attuned to materialities, politics, and also the ecology of the urban sea. If thinking about fish catch is tied not just to their breeding seasons, but also to the ecology of the city, that fish no longer visit on account of coastal pollution, for example. So the nets that fishers like Anthony use are keenly attuned to the ways that fish occupy different depths of the water column in this ecology. Depending on the season and the times of year they go fishing, they cast different kinds of nets to catch particular kinds of fish. Most often they use floating gill nets to catch larger fish like black palm crit, silver palm crit, and mackerel. Bottom gill nets to catch lobsters, crabs in the rocky seabed and bag nets that they would tie to their customary fishing posts in their search, their comments to catch both shellfish like prawns as well as other fish. Floating nets would be often used in the evenings because when fishing in the evenings, a fish would come up to the surface and bottom nets were used in the morning times because fish would be going down in the mornings. Anthony and his son preferred fishing in the evening because the floating nets were easier to pull. Vesa Pasha Vesa Master, Anthony said, using his unique Bombay slang to speak about fishing nets one day. 
the kind of net catches the particular kind of fish, he said, delighting the cleverness of his phrase. But even so, what he caught was not just dependent on the kind of net he cast, but also, to some extent, based on the kind of fish that would choose to come. Jal ka naam aisa rakha hai, he said, kyunki jal jayega, aayega nahi. Nets go to catch fish, they jar, he said, but it's hard to say what will come back in the net. I smiled at this, recalling the many times we went fishing and the net would come up empty. Arm, he said, he would shout into the wind seas, come or bring. He'd call out to the fish, asking them to enter his net. Fish will only occasionally oblige. So, fishers regularly, as I mentioned, go during the springtime of every month to fish. But at the season where Zan, the decision of whether which nets to use and whether to fish at all is based on where others have previously caught fish the previous day and on the environmental conditions of the time. For instance, in April 2019, I went to fish with Ramesh, another fisher. He had told me a couple of days prior that the water was green in colour and especially good for fish. And fish are very attuned to different colours of seawater. And Ria Shazam from Splendid work like documenting this in the Inhabited Sea Project, generating particular expectations of what fish will emerge in particular kinds of water. Interestingly, clear water is, is the worst water for fishing, which was contrary to my expectations. They like thick, muddy, soupy water, and it's easier to hide, and there's more nutrients in them as well. So, Ramesh had said that the water was green in colour and good for fish. His friend had collected 11 kilos of choline in that water the previous day. He hoped it was still good the next morning. Ramesh had made plans to go fishing only the night before. He hadn't quite decided when I called him at around 7, 7.30 in the evening, the previous evening. He told me it had been too windy that day and they hadn't gone out, but that he would check with his colleague, Bahadur, and let me know. Soon after, he called me back, telling me to arrive at 4.30 in the morning. I was always surprised by how the decision on whether to go fish was always a question, depending on the conditions, the investment of diesel that were necessary, the availability of labour, and so on. It was dark at the mother when I arrived. I was nervous while waiting, not so much because it was dark, but because in the little bits of light, I noticed it was windier than I expected. I could see white horses on the waves, little curly white things that we could see. Ramesh arrived soon after, woke father up, and together we boarded the boat. It was simply busier once we left the pier. Pushing through the wind in the dark, the boat was soon crashing into large waves. My apprehension, first stimulated by the absence of a light on the boat, was then multiplied many times over and the only boat I could see was abandoning its trip to the sea on account of the heavy wind. The spray from the waves on all sides drenched us. Bahadur, standing on the boat, covered himself with a blanket. I looked backwards through the firm ground we were leaving, amazed by the ways it would tilt with the boat, um, throwing a sharp relief of horizon, just being a relative concept. As the waves crashed into the boat, Ramesh wondered aloud if we should continue the trip. I was now even more worried. More scared than I was embarrassed, and pleased with them that I wanted to go back. Ramesh dismissed my concern. He told me that he had gone out on rougher waters, and that he was not worried about the boat sinking in this water. He was more anxious about whether he and Bahadur would be able to pull the nets up in this rougher water. It would be difficult to adjust the two of them on the boat. I would obviously useless. <laughs> A very good plan. But the longer we were out, the more committed they were to staying out to make something in the morning. The main question was where to begin casting their nets. Again, Ramesh was not uh, averse to accepting the nets in the, in the, in the, common, the fishing commons. I can talk more about the Q&A. 
These are the comments that officials have a particular post for each tile and NEDS customarily over generations. But to, for another to cast NEDS here would be to invite conflict. But other urged them to go further. So they went past the rocky outcrop, and as they did so, Bart would periodically be checking the water at the front of the boat, looking for bioluminescent algae, and also the color of the water. Because it was still dark, this was hard to do, so he was actually shining a flashlight in the water to see its color. Later that day, Ravish noted that the water was shimmering with what he said was radium, that this would be a good fishing day. I put my hand in that water, following his, to see the blue-gray sparkles all around me. It was beautiful, I was more relaxed now. It descended after much back and forth to cast that in the family section beyond the rocks, around 6.30 a.m. That's about an hour and a half later. Ramesh went forward to do this, and Bahadur dropped back to steer. But no sooner that they cast the nets into the sea that they hurriedly began to pull them up. At first, they thought the problem was that they were in someone else's fishing commons, or on their such. But I later learned that they had inadvertently cast them too close to another that they had later seen in the water. They were a little disappointed then of having to pull up their net very quickly after, not just because of the labor that was involved, but because it was getting later and later in the day. With the sun coming up, they would sit past the window to catch good fish, I learned. They would soon go down to deeper waters. Funny change, Hua. The water has changed, Ramesh said, looking at his colors in the early rising sun. This is good water for fish, he hoped. The Vara going in this direction often brought fish, he told me. Bahadur agreed. With the wind coming in from the north and northwest, that is good wind, he said. They bring fish from Gujarat and press them against the coast. These are also the kinds of waves that do not pose much of a danger to the boat, sinking. When the wind blows from the south or the southeast, they told me, and the current comes from the north, that's when it's dangerous. That's when the boat might capsize. This is why they weren't worried earlier, they explained. They moved towards the shore and cast nets again. But because it was late, they only cast a few nets to catch pomfret. Once these nets were cast, they moved out for a bit and waited for a while. Now the sun was up, I noticed Ramesh looking quite tired in this light. We pulled the nets up soon after. By the end of the day, after all the labor of going out to sea, casting and pulling up nets, Ramesh and Bahadur caught three fish that day. Three small fish. Ramesh was upset. Fishing like this was just not worth it, he said. He talked with Bahadur about maybe trying something different. They could repair the bigger boat and take it out further to sea, to the deep sea maybe, in search of fish. This would be bigger investments. That day, like many others in the sea, showed how fishers register the tide, the current, and the wind. They show how the practice of crafting nets is not just environmentally but also socially mediated. Fishers from the same village actively calibrate where they can cast nets and when they cannot, when it's, when it's too close and when it's okay, uh, to other nets that are floating in the sea. They try to cast them close enough to create a cascade of nets across the sea across which fish cannot cross. But working with Ramesh and Bahadur also revealed how fishers attend closely to the currents and the winds to make the work of fishing more expedient. When fishers cast nets in the sea, expecting they're doing it manually, not without a wench, they do so in a way that put the tide to work, pointing their boats in the direction of the tide so that it quickly opens up their nets behind them. And when pulling up nets, they use the wind towards ensuring that the nets do not get pushed under the boats while they do so. Taken together, fishers suture various temporalities, celestial bodies, and social relations to fish in the urban sea. That is to follow the rod. Fishers do not fish on the sea, but in it. 
Nevertheless, despite all these techniques learned by reading the relations between water and sea sparkle, wind and current, and the nests of neighboring fishers, Bahadur and Ramesh had only three fish to show for the day's work. The climate of fishing had changed. Bullies like Ramesh and Anthony used different kinds of knowledge and tools to produce fish. The archaeological cuts to reveal fish made over generations need now to address how the sea of fish is also made with the water for anthropogenic pollution and climate change. Over the five or six years that we know each other, Anthony and the fishers have frequently talked about these different changes, about how the fishers have been steadily dispossessed of the urban sea, or dispossessed in the urban sea. As the state continued to colonize the city with infrastructure, the policy of both emptied it of fish and also of salt water. These practices aren't distinct from climate change. I argue that they constitute the climate of fishing in Mumbai, a climate that suppresses the pursuit of freedom in the sea in favor of the derangements of land making and real estate. And I'm getting derangements from the work of Amita Koshi. I made this argument inspired by the work of Christina Sharp, who in her book, In the Wake, insists that histories of slavery are inseparable from the phenomena of climate and ecology. But Sharp, in what she calls the weather, and I quote, anti-blackness is as pervasive as climate, end quote. It constitutes the environment of black dispossession in the Americas and forms a set of conditions that black life needs to make itself with. Across the seas, the city of Bombay has also been fabricated through the practices of dispossession, particularly through and first through cartographic and particular operations of European colonialism. Landfill and roads play an important part in Mumbai's popular history. Government reports and urban history books frequently remind readers that this story, one in which engineering works of times past are naturalized so as to continue in, to insist on a story of human mastery to improve wetland environments. While British colonization had ended, the city's terrestrial colonization of the sea continues to this day. In the first chapter of the book that I presented at some of the last term, I described how Mumbai's coastal road, a massive landfill beyond its western coastline, continues to be predicated on these erasures of colonization. Anthony and others living in Wali Koliwada are deeply opposed to the coastal road project. Just over a decade prior, they opposed the camp construction of the Bandra Wali ceiling, a large bridge built for car users on landfill in Mahim Bay. Studies have shown how the land has rendered the city a lot more vulnerable to flooding, including the floods of 2005, which are catastrophic. But as you told me, the construction of the Bandra Wali ceiling also divided and weakened the currents that entered Mahim Bay. Fish no longer come to spawn in Mahim Bay as they used to, he said. Near shore fishing in Wali and Mahim Koliwalas have been affected ever since. The coastal road project, he said, would only intensify these destructions and these dispossessions. This is the landfill for the coastal road project. Um, this was taken in 2018, I think, but it's actually a lot more extensive now. Artisanal fishers are also very concerned with the growth of mechanized trawling in coastal waters. And these trawlers are generally operated by customary fishers, but increasingly by large corporate houses in India. They're powered by large engines, mechanized nets, and are more effective as cooking on fish. And as he would frequently tell me how the polar that would fish in deeper waters, the fish wouldn't, there would not be that many fish left to enter coastal waters to spawn. If trawlers are keeping fish from entering near shore waters, 
the city's sewage outfalls are pushing fish away from them. In a brazen and violation of environmental standards since 1990, so that's about 30 years, the city has, uh, continues to relieve 2 billion litres of sewage into its surrounding seas every day with virtually no treatment. Anthony was acutely aware of the city's sewage dwelling in the sea. And that since he showed me the sewage lingering in the sea, um, and you can see the end of the here, it's actually lying between the sewage water and the regular water. On our trips, he showed me the sewage lingering in the sea. He said that as the tide moved north and south, they pull the sewage along the coastline, forming a wall of low oxygen water that fish do not cross. So you see that here, the outfall actually like releases the sewage um, at point number three, and the, the pool we see going north south. This is an image taken by using remote sensing where they and sensor totally suspended fluids in the water. Colleagues at IIT one may have done this work. But this works what Moja was talking about, what Anthony was talking about. He was talking about the walls of sewage up that don't allow the fish to enter. We focus all these prayers and rituals to get more fish, he said. We offer coconuts to the sea. But this is the problem. The fish don't want to come anywhere near this water, he said. Sea water is not just water, of course. Very little water is just water. Sea water is composed of fish and bacteria, of sewage and salt, and now also plastic. When fishing in, in Mumbai, fishers frequently catch plastic bags and a variety of other packaging in their nets. Anthony saw this problem as being the result of both informal and formal processes. Informally, many conservancy workers and residents of institutions have dumped their trash into the sea. But the plastics in the sea are also a result of formal planning processes, like many in the city in Mumbai have been situating its landfills in wetlands, right? And so when the high tide comes, they erode the landfill, pulling the, the plastic and other kinds of rubbish into the sea. And uh, Anthony was very insistent that when plastic in the sea, fish don't come, right? So we either catch plastics or fish, you can be seldom catch both. And the last one talk about today is about a climate change in terms of the, the rising sea surface temperatures. Today, the Indian Ocean is the fastest warming ocean in the world. The Arabian Sea is the fastest warming part of the Indian Ocean. These have already started changing monsoonal patterns in the city. For instance, today already, monsoons on the western coast of India start later and continue through Nagar and Purnima at start of fishing season that I talked about earlier in the talk. Now, in these warmer waters, cyclones today are an uncanny, yet increasingly common occurrence in the Arabian Sea. The Arabians never had cyclones before as much as they do now, or many fewer anyway. Besides the obvious risk of storm surges and coastal inundation before 10, uh, cyclones, even those that miss the city, also interrupt days of potential fishing and fishing revenue. Uh, this is Cyclone Nisarga from July 2020, which came out very close to the city. And there were cyclones coming down before and after the city as well. Cyclones visit the city during the most productive time of the fishing calendar, typically around September or October. And this takes away from the days of fishing that I talked about earlier. For example, in late September 2018, Anthony got a message not to go fishing for three days because of the cyclone that was passing by in Mumbai. Then just a week later, he had another warning not to go fishing for a few more days because for a different cyclone 
passing near Yemen. So these systems are like a massive scale causing disruption to water across the Arabian Sea between Yemen and Mumbai and everywhere in between. So that's September. Anthony lost one of the most productive months of the year to the effects of climate change, a loss that would not be registered in the ledger of climate lasting damage, though recently the source of much contention in the carbon and meetings. Today, the urgency upon which Koli fishers depend for livelihood is the site of industrial extraction of fish and is composed of anthropogenic waste, landfill, and massive infrastructure, as well as their effects, warming sea surface temperatures, sea level rise, and cyclones. The nearer and longer term phenomena of urban habitation has steadily dispossessed colonies in the sea ever since the amphibious grounds were colonized, which make Bombay a key node of the British Empire. But differently, the slow and ongoing violations of colonization have continued to create harm to the city's indigenous fishers. Just like colonial dispossession elsewhere, as indigenous scholars Kyle Powers White and Zoe Todd and others have shown, the climate of fishing in Mumbai is not new but an outcome of long-standing processes of colonial dispossession. Climate impacts are not so much a sense of colonial deja vu, a new crisis that echoes the older form of colonial dispossession, but more as an enduring crisis that has intensified as the colonial city has accreted in the sea. To draw the work of Afanana Sultana, the crises of urban fissures are composed by what she calls the unbearable heaviness of climate coloniality land reclamation, infrastructure, construction, racial capitalism, and anthropogenic waste that continues to proliferate in Mumbai seas. In the next chapter, which I haven't finished yet, I will dwell in the ways that the anthropogenic materials of the urban sea, road, sewage, plastic, and warmer waters, interact at a variety of scales, producing complex relations between cause and effect, figure and ground, and time and space. For now, I just want to conclude on the ways in which the climate change sea is one that forecloses the possibility of freedom and life for indigenous fishers in Mumbai. For now, Anthony goes on fishing in the sea, periodically experimenting with new technologies that make it more viable. For instance, a few years before, his son was experimenting with a sonar fish finder to find a few fish that were still traveling in the sea. When I spoke with him um, this past November, he told me he'd purchased a smaller boat, a smaller motor, one that you a less fuel and needs fewer workers. But every year, the slow violence of infrastructure accrete, and they further squeeze human and non-human life from these little regions of the city. 300 years after the little landscapes are colonized, the urban sea continues to be a sacrificial zone for the staging of the city. This is why the sea no longer holds a promise of the freedom to pursue projects of future well-being among holy communities. As such, to the extent that lives worth living are crafted in Mumbai fishing villages, these are desiccated forms of survivance in the city. One afternoon, I was talking with our leader of the Wadi Koli Samaj. I spoke to him about the city of lack of interest in the fisheries that feed the city. Planning ends on land, I said, thinking of the work of city planners, only interested in real estate development and the forms of like alienable development rights you generate. The leader, someone who himself lives now in a mid-rise apartment and works a nine-to-five job, responded angrily. The city has supported people from all over India, he said. People have made their millions off this land, but they haven't spared a thought for the lives of Kohli's. The sea is our farm, our Kheti, he said. Line khatam kardiya, Kheti barbaad kardiya, he said. The fishing line has been finished, the farm has been ruined. The sea lake benefited only the wealthy and closed off their fishing areas, he was now shouting at me. 
that this, this should allow us to develop our land and give us some incentives to do so. And it's in fact in development and alienation of their urban land that many call each day craft the future. The 20 or 30 fishing villages in Mumbai today are active frontiers of land speculation, a process that joins builders, politicians, and many in the calling community. Proposed to build massive buildings at the hardened and desiccated edge of the land and water. The ethnic perspective that deploy here and extend is one full of colonial desire and matter of building dry ground in liberal regions to sell as real estate. Now that the sea has been finished, or at least no longer holds the promise of freedom, many Kolis seek to alienate their fishing grounds, comments at homes, to make a future with which to live, at least in the moment. Thanks for listening to the Oxford Anthropology Podcast. For more episodes, visit podcast.ox.ac.uk slash anthropology or find us on Apple Podcast Audio.